Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It's Friday, August 1st, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. And I want to let you know that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Harry's Razors. They're a new company that's disrupting the shaving industry by, at long last, making a high-quality shaving experience eminently affordable. It only costs 15 bucks to get a Harry's Razor set, including a handle, three blades, and shave cream shipped to your door, and the packaging is really cool. There's even a custom engraving option to put your own initials on the razor. And in fact, today, a Harry's shaving set costs even less than that because we have a special offer for our listeners. If you go to harrys.com and use the promo code inquiringminds, you can save $5 off your first purchase. So head on over to harrys.com now. So, Indre, I think this will not be surprising to you, given what many of our shows in the past have been about. But I really am getting to believe that we're living in a golden age for popular math trade books. We've talked about a number of them on the show. Jordan Ellenberg wrote this book that I love called How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. You talked to Edward Frankel, who wrote Love and Math. And then, of course, don't forget Simon Singh, Mathematics right. and the Simpsons. Yep, exactly. And so the genre, though, is still not tapped out. Uh, these books are all different. And now there is yet another math book that is also very different, not at all duplicative. It's by Barbara Oakley. She's an engineering professor at Oakland University. It's entitled A Mind for Numbers, How to Excel at Math and Science Even If You Flunked Algebra. And Oakley is a self-described former math hater who turned into an engineering professor, so clearly she, clearly she had a turnaround. And what's, I think, great about her book is how it synthesizes what we're learning from cognitive neuroscience about how to learn. And then it applies that to how you can get good at math. So it's not just saying, oh, math is great, go learn. It says math is great, go learn. And by the way, you know, adopt these techniques. (laughs) So here's a clip from our interview talking a little bit about that. One thing that I talk about in the book, and it's so simple that it seems almost absurd, is that simple technique known as the Pomodoro technique. And in that technique, you just set a timer for 25 minutes and focus. And then when it's done, you relax. So during that 25-minute time period, you really get rid of other extraneous possible 
uh, bothersome kinds of things like uh, email uh, sounds or anything like that. But what this seems to do is it allows you to practice your ability to focus intently and to practice your ability to let go and relax. And I think both things are important. Yeah, I'm always surprised at how little the research on learning actually permeates the popular culture. I mean, people continue to make the same mistakes in terms of the way that they study over and over and over again. And, you know, we talked with Maria Konnikova about the fact that we're notoriously bad at multitasking. That is, we actually pay a switch cost every time we turn our attention to a new task. So, you know, it's great that she's talking about this and also talking about potential ways that we can avoid um, the switch costs, but also that, that there is something about that you can learn how how to focus and concentrate more effectively. This is not an innate skill that we seem to think, oh, you either are a person that can focus or you're not. Um, this is something that we can actually improve with training. So I think that's awesome. And that's why listening to this show will double smartenify you. That's not a word. <laughs> but uh, in other words, you will both learn about a very cool body of research and then you'll go out and use it to make yourself smart too. So hooray. <laughs> Awesome. So that'll be uh, our long-form interview for today. But first, Indre, we have a guest for the earlier part of the show, and I will let you do the honors. Yeah, and we're actually going to be talking about task switching in just a minute. So in grad school, whenever I came up with a what I thought a, was a really good idea for a new study, you know, something like, oh, let's study consciousness or, you know, the self, um, I always had to check with my friend Lucina because she was the one who already had a study in the can that was looking at exactly the questions that I thought were most fascinating. She's now an assistant professor at the University of Miami in Florida. So I was delighted to see recently in the news that a current study of hers that was published this week in Cerebral Cortex has gotten some great press, and it's about kids with autism and understanding a little bit more about how their brains are different. So, Lucina Udin, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi, Andre. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to reconnect. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the study and how it tells us more about the brains of autistic children? Sure. Uh, we were actually interested in studying this um, idea that you see a lot of inflexibility in the behavior of kids with autism. And this is something that you you probably have seen if you've ever uh, worked with children with a disorder, which is they have a lot of trouble switching between uh, working uh, in one area to another, so go, or even just going from one situation to another, dealing with new environments and new circumstances. And while we often think when we think of autism that it's just about social and communication deficits, is actually some of these difficulties and transitions between situations that really affect the kids the most, as well as their caregivers and teachers. So basically, what we wanted to study in this uh, this recent paper was the idea that there might be something about the brain which is less flexible in individuals with autism that might be contributing to some of these um, things that we see as cognitive and behavioral inflexibility in day-to-day -day situations. Yeah. In fact, one of my friends who has a, a son with autism actually describes exactly what you're saying, that, that the most difficult times are when he's transitioning from one environment to another, say, you know, from daycare to come home or in, into a new preschool. That's really a challenge for them. So what kind of a task did you develop in order to understand, you know, how this cognitive uh, behavior is different in these kids? 
Well, we actually thought at first that we might find uh, explicit difficulties in social situations because, as as we know, that's one of the defining characteristics of the disorder is trouble with social interactions. So we had one test that was very much a social attention task, which was basically using faces that were presented sequentially, and the children were looking for when uh, the same face was always presented, and then one, once in a while a different face would pop up. So they'd be looking for when's the, the new face coming on. So kind of paying attention to faces. And, and looking for differences. And so we thought that this would tap kind of one of the, the major deficits in the disorder. And then we chose another task, which we thought that kids would uh, basically have no problem with, which is very simple arithmetic processing. So they'll see a problem, for example, three plus one equals four, and just have to say, is that correct or incorrect? And so these are children between the ages of seven and 12. They have no trouble doing this kind of very simple arithmetic. So we thought one would be a little bit of a task with social demands, and the other would be a task with uh, that we thought that children with autism wouldn't have any difficulty with whatsoever. And so is that what you found? Well, interestingly, all of the kids did really well on both tasks. So it wasn't that they were impaired behaviorally when we asked them to perform. But what actually happened was that the the finding that we had was more general and actually encompassed both the math and the social version of the task. So it wasn't really the case that they were, uh, the brain flexibility that we indexed was specific to the social task. It was exactly the same scenario when we presented with um, arithmetic problems. So it seems like what we were tapping into was a real general phenomenon in the autistic brain that any situation uh that you examine, or at least in these two cases, we found the same pattern, which is that the brain connections that are active during the tasks are really more similar to the resting condition of the brain in the autistic individuals compared with the typically developing individuals. So it's almost as if in the typical brain, you have this kind of switching between brain states that allows you to go from a task to rest, for example, like a state where you're not doing anything to a state where you're actively engaged. Whereas in the brains of the children with autism, there was actually a lot of similarity between those two brain states. It's as if you could really couldn't tell them apart as much. So is this something that's actually somewhat reversible if you teach kids to think a certain way and you teach them young enough? Or is this just laid down and they can't really change it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of these kids are uh, have actually already undergone a lot of therapies, behavioral treatments um, for their autism. Uh, these are children aged you know, around 7 to 12, which means they were probably diagnosed much earlier and have, have undergone a lot of treatments already. So I think um, there we do see a lot of modification, you know, with training, with um, with time. So it's definitely something that can be worked on. And, and do you see a difference in the resting state also in terms of the connectivity in the brain? So like... Uh, their brains at rest, are they, are they already wired differently or is it just a task switching problem? Yeah, this is a great question. We actually, this study that we're discussing now is a follow-up to an earlier study where we looked just at the resting brain of kids with autism. And we just wanted to see what does the organization of the brain look like when it's not doing anything at all. And we were really surprised to find in this age group that the brains were hyper-connected, sort of over-connected in certain systems. And what we predicted based on that finding was that if brain regions are sort of overconnected to each other, then they might have more trouble switching and flexibly adapting when a task situation comes up. So that's exactly what we were trying to see with this uh, follow-up study. 
So you're saying, you know, the brain isn't doing anything at all. So it sounds a little bit like something else that's been in the news recently, which is, you know, this this idea from the movie Lucy that we only use 10% Grown. of our brain. Grown. <laughs> oh, okay, boy. go ahead. I'll, experts, take it away. <laughs> Sorry, Chris, we just cut you out of that one. Yeah. Uh, so, so, Lucina, what do you think about that? And what do you mean by the brain isn't doing anything when it's at rest? So, yeah, that's, I mean, I think we're accustomed to thinking that when something isn't moving, like if we're not moving our body, that we're not actually burning calories or we're, we're not using energy. But the brain is different. It's actually always using energy, even when you're not actively engaging it. So just sitting around, your brain uses about 20% of the energy that your body, you know, creates. So it's actually always doing something, you know, whether you're, you're doing uh, mental arithmetic or whether you're um, just daydreaming. From my understanding, there are a number of theories of where the myth comes from, but for the most, you know, the, the most compelling for me is that it came from a quote by a very famous father of experimental psychology, uh, William James. He was the brother of Henry James, the novelist, uh, and he worked at Harvard in the 1890s. And, um, you know, he w- was really interested in potential, and he made this comment that we're only really using 10% of the potential of our brain. And that has gone, you know, through the telephone <laughs> game, has changed into we're only using 10% of our brain. So the two ideas are nuanced and different. But when people say to me, you know, this, you know, what do you mean by do we only use 10%? I mean, the the truth is, is that the vast majority of the computations that our brain is making are outside of our conscious awareness, right? Right. That's what I thought. That's what I thought the point was, because that's Mm -hmm. actually true. Exactly. And, and I think that that's, that that's a different idea, though, that we, it's not like we're not using that 90%. We're just, just not that aware. We don't have, mm-hmm. Exactly. We're not aware of it. We don't have access to it. Um, and so the, this movie kind of says, well, what if you did have access to it and you could control it? Um, you know, what, what <laughs> yeah, would that look like? Yeah, then you'd forget to breathe is what would happen. <laughs> I mean, exactly. It's not, like it's, it's not like you turn on the ninja part of the brain and suddenly you can, you know, you can do stuff. It's like you actually will start forgetting to breathe and yeah. forgetting right. to have your heartbeat. I mean, it's yeah. Anyway, that's right. Yeah, and so yeah, so when you're you know when you're engaged in 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 thinking very deeply about something, say you're driving, you know you can get distracted and you can crash your car, uh, or you can go to a destination that you've gone to a hundred times without kind of mindlessly you know thinking about it. So so uh, yeah, I think that that's where it really where it comes from. And I but one of the things I think is really cool about the fact that we're even having this conversation is that there's been a lot of backlash in the media that this movie didn't get the science right. I mean, let's Good. stop for a minute and say like that's kind of awesome right yeah i know that's science in hollywood is changing i think and that shows you there's a lot of more public awareness about the brain and how it works now so anyone on the street isn't uh, naive about this uh, assumption so most people are actually now aware of the controversies and the fact that this 10 percent thing was an exaggeration but i really like the myth actually because i if i remember correctly that was the whole reason i got into neuroscience i was probably huh. about in middle school or some young impressionable age when i first heard the myth and i thought wow is that true and if that's true i want to find out more about it and it actually got me so interested in neuroscience that i think if as far as i can remember that was the first time i considered it as a career so whether it was, you know, true or not, or controversial or not, I like that it gets people thinking and gets people interested in the topic. 
That's awesome. There's actually something good did come of this. <laughs> now I know your secret. <laughs> yeah, my secret. <laughs> uh, just one irony. Can I just say one irony? So this is an action movie, right? And you know, in Hollywood, they're all these amazing fighters because they're doing all these movies. Again, like it's like the ninja part of the brain, right? So if you were to, and those things are instincts, and, and fight, of, fight or flight is also an instinct. So if you were to turn one of these action movie stars conscious of all of their super fighting skills, then basically they'd probably get beat up really quick. You know, they would like, <laughs> lose all of the good fighting instincts think so but can i also just say state the obvious and say how awesome it is that she's a woman and that finally we have a female character who's super smart yes. and <laughs> kicks ass yeah. supportive of that yes yeah I'm, so i'm, I'm looking still gonna to go see it. it yeah definitely gonna go see it <laughs> 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 totally, totally. So I wanted to switch to another topic uh, for a couple of minutes that also has been in the news recently. Uh, you might have heard about a study that's come out, uh, in, I think it's in psychological science, uh, that, that is sort of the culmination of a larger body of work. And the headline in The Economist and in other news outlets ha- is... Music is genetic, uh, that in fact, this study, it's a twin study coming out of Scandinavia, has shown that it doesn't matter how much you practice, monozygotic twins p- perform at the same level you know, outside of how much they practiced on this one Swedish musical discrimination test. And so therefore, what some of you suspected is true, music is genetic, and you know, you can't do anything about it. Um, In fact, there's even a headline that I've seen that says practice does not make perfect. So that's those are the findings. And I have to say this really gets my goat. And um, full disclosure, I am employed the, at the Conservatory of Music. I do teach a course called Training the Musical Brain. So I have a conflict of interest in, in feeling that there is something that we can do to make ourselves better musicians. But let me just ask you, if the headline was intelligence is largely genetic, do you really think that this would, would make the headlines of The Economist and other, uh, other outlets? Well, I mean, it seems like they just picked one really specific musical ability. I mean, I, how can you say all of music is genetic based on one discrimination task? It seems like there's a lot more that goes into musical ability. And this is just saying one particular thing we can measure has some relationship with genetics. But it's it's too too much of an overgeneralization, I think. Well, I don't know. I so I, I I know that it's fallacious to use an anecdote to try to refute statistics. But, but here let me we go. Go ahead, and do it. go ahead, Chris. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to really do it. But um, but are, are we saying that there's no genetic component to musical skill? I'll just say that in my family, there's two talented. No, there are no twins, but there are two musically talented siblings, and there's one musically untalented sibling, me. <laughs> And and we all practiced, okay? We all tried. And one a sibling, me, learned that he just wasn't very good at it, um, while the other two excelled. And but but we also all three of us practiced soccer, and we all improved, and we all became good at it. So I don't know. Maybe I just suck at practicing, but maybe I just suck at music. Well, I think that's one thing is that there are so many different ways that you can practice music. And, and as Lucina mentioned, it's like intelligence in the sense that the definition of musical skill is very variable depending on who you ask. Um, so, you know, let, let me just describe the task. They had people listening to different pitches and they had to say whether the two pitches were the same or different. Uh, then they would insert that d- different pitch in a sequence and say, can you, can you pick out the sequence that has the pitch that's different? And the same thing with, um, rhythm where they would say, you know, can you dis- can you detect which of these sequences has a different sort of time interval between the the notes that are played? Um, So 
let me ask you, you know, would Britney Spears score well on that test? You know, is she a musician? Uh, I mean, right? It depends on who you ask. Well, there's, there's auto-tune now. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, would Beethoven, who was deaf at the end of his life, would he score well? Yeah, it seems no. like it's not about musical performance. It's about perception, very fine perceptual ability. So that doesn't even seem to be specific to music to me. Right. And and when they were first trying to validate this test, they actually said, look, we gave it to people who had musical training. And if you had musical training, you did better on this test than if you didn't. <laughs> so it's really interesting how then they, they turn that around and say, OK, but if you look at monozygotic twins and you compare them to dizygotic twins who share less genetic um, you know, material, we see no further effective practice. Um, but I, I really I think fundamentally, first of all, we need to before you go out and say, well, I clearly don't have the genes, so I shouldn't study music anymore. Um, before you stop funding musical education in schools, which, by the way, has shown to have great transfer um, to other abilities, say executive function and, and even math, um, you know, really try to figure out what it is that you mean by musical skill and, and ask yourself if this was something that was more controversial, like intelligence that we know is affected by what we call having a fixed mindset, feeling that intelligence is innate. Uh, you know, that's a really bad thought to have that actually leads to kids who don't perform well uh, later on in life. You know, yeah, is that, is that really how we should be interpreting this kind of work? Yeah, I mean, this is it really goes back to this age old nature nurture debate. And nobody now thinks that everything is genetically determined or everything is determined by your environment. That's just too much of a, a dichotomy that doesn't satisfy anyone you know, in this day and age. So I'm surprised that they wanted to take such a strong stance on the side of genetics, you know, when probably in every area that's had this discussion, the current consensus is that it's not 100% one or the other in any scenarios. And it's not, yeah, and it's not just the science journos who are getting it out of proportion. The headline of the study itself claims yeah. that. So that's, that's a, <laughs> a little surprising. The... And, you know, it's, it's basically saying, you know, don't, don't bother if, if you haven't got the genes. Just, <laughs> yeah, which is just totally false, you know. Um, and, you know, imagine if, if, if people said the same thing about kids with autism, right? right? Because yeah. there's a genetic component. Yeah, there's a genetic component to everything. I mean, yeah, how, yeah I'm sorry to say that's, <laughs> that's just true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to go back to practicing on my guitar. There whose you spine go. Is broken, whose spine is broken at the moment. <laughs> so, um, oh, and but, also, Chris, don't yeah. forget that firstborns are just bad at everything. Right, I know, are always better, I know, so. but at least we think we Except run, for run IQ. Firstborns have greater <laughs> IQ. And they're more right-wing, remember? We learned oh, that. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, so now, and I am a firstborn, so I can so say So am that. I. So, and I'm so, not. That's why I can say that. <laughs> Okay, well, let's take a rather large turn and cover one more uh, fascinating and entertaining and maybe a little gross science story that we found this week. This is out of Aberystwyth University in Wales. I'm sure I got that wrong. Let's try it again. Aberystwyth University. Okay, so this is what they were studying. We all know that shaking hands is maybe not that sanitary. It spreads germs. So they were like, is there a better way? And in this new study, what they did was they actually put on gloves, dipped, or at least one person, one person dipped a hand into what is described as a bacterial broth, which is just ew. And then they shake hands with the other glove, 
uh, gloved hand, or they fist bump with the other gloved hand, or they high five the other gloved hand, and then they measure the germ transfer from one glove to the other. And I'm sure they were very careful not to transfer it to actual people. But the result is that by far the most germs are transferred by handshake. The high five transfers only half as many, and there's 90% fewer germs transferred in the fist bump. Okay, and so one of the researchers said, and this is a quote from a press release, if the general public could be encouraged to fist bump, there is genuine potential to reduce the spread of infectious diseases. I don't know. What do you think? Can we can we just can we do that? Can we? I'm I, I mean, fist bump I, I, motion. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's pretty exciting. I'd love to see the fist bump become more popular in our social interactions. Um, but I just have to say, you know, one of my very first boyfriends went to Everest with. So I actually, I've actually okay. been there. There you go. And you, <laughs> and, say uh, like, you say it like you know how to say it. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Nick Kiersey. Uh But uh, but I have to say, there's a lot of pubbing that happens in addition to fist bumping and Aberyst with. So you know, <laughs> something that. else funny from this study, they found that a stronger handshake increased the amount of bacteria shared. So you know, like if you're a guy, you know this. They're these. They're these other men who like to shake your hand really hard, and it's like this like <laughs> macho thing. And so next time it happens, I'm like, dude, you just. You know, you know how many germs it spreads when you do a tough handshake. You're infecting both of us. I just, I really, <laughs> whoa, I really whoa, want to Chris, say that next time. You just got me my best idea for the bad ad hoc hypothesis festival. <laughs> that, you know, people that that people have evolved a tighter handshake in order to spread germs and and you know hurt, harm their enemies. Good hypothesis. Um, no, they would have evolved something to be protective against germs. I would think they would. They um, would have. Well, I don't know. Bummer. I don't know. I lost it. <laughs> I mean, why didn't they evolve the fist bump many times over? Well, I have to think about it and create a, a very good just so story. I'll get back to you on that. Okay, and this was, this study was published in the Journal of the Annals of the Obvious. Uh, actually, it's the uh, the American Journal of Infection Control. So. so, on that note, thank you, Lucina, for joining us on Inquiring Minds. It's great to talk to both of you. And we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with Chris's interview with Barbara Oakley. So, Inre, this is something that always blows my mind you know the drugstore what is the most valuable commodity in the drugstore at least uh as measured by how much it's protected from shoplifting it's the razors right you know they're they're behind that you gotta go get an employee and you gotta bring them over and like can you open this for me you know you can't just bring one up there because they're protecting them and it's because they're so expensive yeah absolutely i walk by that you know locked cabinet all the time and that's where harry's razors come in uh so this is a company that is disrupting the shaving industry by actually making good shaves affordable. So get this, it only costs 15 bucks for an entire Harry's razor set that includes a handle, three blades, and shave cream, all shipped right to your door. And there's even a custom engraving option that you can put your own initials on the razor so you never lose it. Or in our household, for example, as my husband likes to remind me, it's his razor, not mine. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll let you settle that off the air. But in fact, today... (laughs) For our listeners, a Harry's shaving set costs even less than that because we have a special offer for you. If you go to harrys.com and use this promo code, INQUIRINGMINDS, you can save $5 off your first purchase. Again, the promo code is INQUIRINGMINDS. So head on over there now. Barb Oakley, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you for having me, Chris. It's a thrill to have you. And, you know, we are getting more and more enamored of this new trend in publishing. You know, 
popular books about math. We talked to Jordan Ellenberg. He wrote this bestseller, How Not to Be Wrong. We talked to Edward Frankel, author of Love and Math, The Heart of Hidden Reality, and now yours, A Mind for Numbers. What's up with all these math books? And they're all doing well. Everybody loves them. Well, I think the the thing is, everyone realizes that math is important. And because of that, we all can't help but take an angle and, and different angles when learning math. But yeah. the angle that I'm coming from is how do we really learn? And not right. only math, but learning in general. And it turns out that there's just fantastic new insights in learning where learning math is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, and, I, and I was just about to say, your, your approach is totally different. There's no overlap, and it's very much about the cognitive science of learning. In fact, w- reading it, I thought to myself, wow, first of all, when I was learning in school, nobody told us any of this. <laughs> <laughs> they still don't. Yeah, why? They, I mean, they might not have known, you know, 20 years ago. I don't know. Well, the thing is, this always shocks me too. And that is, we spend from 12 to 16 years of our lives in formal education institutions, and yet we're never given any kind of real formal instruction on how to learn effectively. Yeah. (laughs) It's mind-boggling, isn't it? But yet, there's a few simple insights that can dramatically improve your ability to learn with less frustration. And those are the kinds of things that I try and communicate in the book. Mm-hmm. I learned them the hard way myself, but yeah. now that I'm sort of on the inside as a professor of engineering, who's very interested in the uh, in insights from neuroscience, uh, I can convey some of these insights, I think, in a simple way. Well, I want to unpack them, but, you know, I'd like to start... By, with a little story, because when I was reading your book, this is the association that I made. And this will probably be familiar to you. So, a man named Charles Dickens happened to be my favorite writer when I was growing up. And he had this very, very rigorous routine for writing. He would write from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., five hours. And then that was it. He would go out for a very intense, fast walk. And he would spend a lot of time walking. And then he wouldn't write again until the next morning. Now, it seems like, reading your book, Dickens had something figured out (laughs) about how to use his brain, didn't he? He sure did. As it turns out, that sort of downtime when you're not thinking about directly about what you're trying to learn or figure out or write about, that downtime is a time of subconscious processing that allows you to to make sense of and to learn better. And so what Dickens was doing was very intelligently uh, knowing that part of the writing process consisted of going out and going for walks. And he's not alone in that. Uh, Actually, uh, Thomas Edison, for example, uh, what he would do is something quite different, but it actually allowed him to access some of these same neural resting states. He would sit in a chair with a key in his, or with ball bearings in his hand, and then he'd relax away, kind of noodling about with whatever he was trying to solve, relax away. And when he'd so relax that the ball bearings would fall from his hands, they'd clatter to the floor, they'd wake him up. 
And then he, he would go off and take some of these ideas from resting state modes back into the focus mode where he could work on them. So in some sense, what Edison was doing in technology areas is the same thing that Dickens was doing in his writing. So and and you know to just put some some terms on this that you use in the book you say that you have to have both a focused state of learning and that's what everybody knows and that's when you're using conscious attention to pay to to read or to calculate or to reason um but what they don't pay attention to is the diffuse state the state when you're actually not uh, consciously learning precisely i i call them just for terms of of ease of use. I call it focused and diffuse mode thinking. Focus mode is when you're focusing and concentrating, and diffuse mode is when you're relaxing and you're not really focusing in on whatever you're trying to solve. And as it turns out, that diffuse mode way of thinking about things, uh, when you're focusing, you're actually blocking your access to the diffuse mode. And the diffuse mode, as it turns out, is what you often need to be able to solve a very difficult new problem. So sometimes the best thing you can do to solve a difficult problem is to focus on it, but then to get your mind off it, to let it go so that these other neural states can have access to them. Now, I, I don't know if you know this book by Daniel Kahneman, this huge bestseller. Oh, yes. Think, okay, you do. Thinking Fast and Slow. And he it's called The Dual Process Theory of How the Brain Works. I mean, am I not right in detecting a very close analogy here? I think there is a very close analogy. Uh, I, I love Kahneman's work. I think he's he, much like William James, seems to have not only a good scientific perspective on what is going on when we think, but he also seems to have a, a uncanny ability to intuit from his own perceptions how we really think and to allow that to perform, uh, inform his science. So here's what I don't understand if I think about it in his terms. And by the way, you know, just for listeners, maybe they haven't read his book, he calls system one what you would call more of the diffuse state and system two what you would call more of the focus state. Um, that's how he does it. But one thing that he says is that system two, this is, this is the focused thinking you're using, you know, you're using the most recently evolved part of your brain, right? <laughs> you know, the higher functions. Uh, and, um, what he says is that, you know, you, it has limited bandwidth. It, it consumes a lot, a lot of energy to do this. And so basically you pretty much have to stop because you just get tired. So it seems to me like you would always have to go to a diffuse state eventually. Uh, no matter what. So it seems like you should then proceed to learn in both ways, no matter what. I think you do. But some people are, some very persistent and focused people can manage to hold that off some, right? Yeah. <laughs> because they're really focusing. And mm -hmm. indeed, sometimes continuing to focus, if it's just a little baby step to get to where you need to go, then mm -hmm. continued focus will work. But if it's a kind of a dramatic refocusing and shifting of neural patterns that's what re is required, then you really do have to let go and let these other neural states kind of have a hand in what uh, in doing the analysis. Yeah, what one thing I thought when I was reading the book was that basically it's kind of bad news for uh, intensely focused and driven people in some sense, because they've maybe built up 
a set of habits and techniques that they think make them very successful, and maybe to some extent they do, but they involve a huge amount of focus and basically forcing yourself to stick to a rigid schedule, spending a lot of time on it, uh, and they might be sacrificing rest in these other states. I think that, well, for example, B.F. Skinner, uh, Mm -hmm. one of the things that he wrote about was that as he matured and he became more and more successful, one of the things he learned with his success was that when it came time to let go and rest, he actually needed to do that and not to just turn his attention on to compulsively beginning work on something else. And he said that that was an incredibly valuable insight. And indeed, when I, when I work with and talk to some of the country's leading neuroscientists, they do incredible amounts of work, but when they rest, they rest and it's, yeah. and it's really productive for them. Yeah. So I think that this is, this is circling back to, it, it overlaps a lot with, you know, things we've talked about on past shows. We had Maria Konnikova from the New Yorker about talking about sleep. Um, and the importance of, of sleep. And also, she was also talking about the importance of meditation and just, you know, sort of turning it off for a while. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of resonance there. I think there is. One, one thing that I talk about in the book, and it's so simple that it seems almost absurd, is that simple technique known as the Pomodoro technique. And in that technique, you just set a timer for 25 minutes and focus And then when it's done, you relax. So during that 25-minute time period, you really get rid of other extraneous, possible, uh, bothersome kinds of things like uh, email uh, sounds or anything like that. But what this seems to do is it allows you to practice your ability to focus intently and to practice your ability to let go and relax. And I think both things are important. And even in my book, I talk about the importance of paradox. Whenever you grasp one thing and say, that's it, that's the important thing in learning, it's always, there's a a sort of an other side of the handle that it's only half the story. And if you think that focused attention, for example, is the only way to learn, you're you're kind of driving yourself into a corner because you also have to let go in order to learn. Yeah, and I think many of us just sort of intuitively do know this because many of us have had the experience of having something pop into your head uh, where you weren't thinking about it and suddenly it's sort of like, aha, now it all makes sense. I mean, it seems to me that that's where a lot of ideas come from um, for things to write. Uh, they don't they don't come when I'm thinking, oh, let's think about the idea. They come when I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But I I think the real key that eludes people a lot of the time is the idea that it's the removing of attention that actually allows that aha insight to take place. For example, when you're walking away from a test and you're just walking out the door and aha, it strikes you what you should have said, it isn't that you you were just working away and it just came to you. It's that when you finished the test and turned it in, your attention shifted. And that's what allowed that insight to slip back into your mind and uh, with put together new ideas. So uh, I think that's important. There are a lot of implications here for 
I think people in regular jobs in the working day also because let's I think we all know this too. You focus on something for a while and you're good at it, good at it for maybe two hours and then you know you become less good at it. We all know that we sort of fade. There's this sort of fatigue that happens. But if you're in a structured work environment, you're not supposed to stop. You know that looks that looks bad. I mean, so in effect, what you do instead is maybe you stop a little and you go get coffee and a cookie. To biochemically sort of try to push it farther. <laughs> yes, it, but it works. And this this attention shifting is actually, I think, important in many aspects of life. And also, another thing is just uh, we often, when we're problem solving, it, for example, with math, we don't realize that this is the same sort of approach you need when you're problem solving in life. For example, if you're trying to figure out how do I schedule something related to a trip that I have to make? Uh, and you can't figure it out. A lot of times, if you put it in mind and then just let it go, it will, uh, you don't have to solve that problem instantly. And, and if you let your diffuse mode work in the background, it can come back with some very interesting, uh, solutions to whatever that problem is. Let's let's apply this to the actual process of learning. Uh, what does it say for some of the traditional things that people do to learn, like, I don't know, memorization or something like that? Well, memorization, this is, again, one of those ideas, this paradoxical idea in, in learning. Memorization has long gotten sort of a bad uh, reputation among educators. Oh, memorization's not important. It's whether you really understand something. And I can't tell you how many times students have come up to me and said, well, you know, I really understand this. I just don't understand why I missed it on the test. <laughs> and it's, and, and I want to tell them, well, you might have understood it when you read it in the book, but you clearly didn't get it into your brain so that you could you could actually use it. So memorization is a, a good and bad thing. Memorization can actually help sometimes when you're, let's say you memorize an equation. Well, some educators would say, that's terrible. You shouldn't do that. But by doing that, you're actually practicing and playing with it in your mind and you can learn it more deeply and use it more effectively. And it's, it's as learning, um, as we've learned chunking and getting these chunks of knowledge, for example, equations and how to use them is, is characteristic of virtually all experts in any knowledge uh, area. So for some reason, we think it's okay for musicians to memorize songs and for linguists to memorize words in a language, but, but somehow it's not okay to do that with math. Yeah. Uh, and that, that actually isn't right and it isn't consonant with what we're finding out about how we really learn. Okay, let's take this concept of chunking. I was going to ask you that, and I'm sorry that when you say the word, I see that kid in the Goonies whose name was Chunk, and he's actually like seeing a cop car go by, and he th pushes his uh, chocolate milk up against the mirror, and then... <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes, that's, yes. Okay, so that's not what chunking is. What is chunking? Well, chunking is creating a little neural network that briefly and nicely encompasses whatever idea you're trying to learn. 
So if you can get a chunk in your mind, uh, for example, chess masters have tens of thousands of chunks uh, related to the different chess patterns that they know by heart. And they can call up any one of these chunks when they need to in order to put things together in a novel way and come up with new ways to play the game. So chunking, it, as it turns out, is a, is a really important concept in learning. It just means creating a very nicely compact, well-put-together neural webs of, of information that you can easily call into your working memory, into consciousness, when you need it. So this would be like, I guess, if we were going to use an analogy, and I'm not the musician, my co-host Andre Viscontis is, but if, you, if you're a musician, you know how to play a scale. I mean, maybe, you know, the, the, I think it's eight notes in a scale. Um, so that would be maybe a, a chunk. Is that, you know, and so then it starts to come automatically. Would that be a good analogy? That would be exactly a good analogy. And, and what okay. that is, is as they say, neurons that fire together, wire together. So mm-hmm. usually what you do when you're beginning to learn a musical instrument, for example, is you, you learn little bits and then you connect the bits together into bigger bits and then even bigger bits. And so the chunks, as you become masterful, become larger, and you can draw them together and and play beautiful music. Uh, So something else you talk about, and I want to unpack this a great deal. I think this is very important. Based based on this framework, you think that procrastination is bad even in in ways that we didn't know. I mean, we already knew it was really bad, but maybe it's even badder. Oh, actually, sometimes procrastination is really good. So, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so we can't give it a total bad rap. It's, again, one of those paradoxical things. It's good and bad. But uh, procrastination can be, uh, can be challenging, and here's why. When you're learning something new, uh, or let's say you're lifting weights and you're, you're building your muscular strength, Everybody knows that if you're trying to build muscular strength, you do it bit by bit, day by day. You don't like cram it all the night before a big weightlifting Mm -hmm. competition, right? Mm -hmm. But learning is like that too. And people don't realize that. When When you're learning something new, you're actually building new neural architecture, just like when you're lifting weights, you're building new muscular infrastructure, and it takes time to do that. So because we can't see what's happening in our brain, we tend to think, well, you know, I can put that off until the night before and do it all then. But oftentimes, especially if it's something difficult that you're learning, what happens is that means you're not building solid neural infrastructure and you're not learning as effectively and it melts away much more quickly, whatever you have learned. So that's why procrastination is important. You want to not not put everything off until the very last second when you're learning things. You want to treat it more like you're, you're learning a language or you're a learning dance or learning music a bit by bit each day. So that's, would this be why, I mean, I certainly found that it was possible to cram for a test and the next morning, you know, know, know the things you needed to know, but then not retain it longer term. Is that... Is that what we're talking about? Then it sort of vanishes. Absolutely. And in in some fields that call for pure memorization, you can do that. You can get away with it, and it may melt away, but you can do well 
on any individual test. But in fields that call for more integration of the knowledge that you're learning, for example, in engineering, you, you can't really just get away with regurgitating a bunch of facts. And that often requires putting together new neural infrastructure, and it takes time. And that's why I think science and engineering and mathematics, uh, as studies have shown, students do need to take more time when they're learning that. Yeah, and I think that it also shows how problematic it is that many students are given the impression somehow that these things are all about memorization. And so then they memorize, uh, and it may do well for them or not, but they don't actually get deeper understanding if they're just memorizing. Every two weeks, they're memorizing before a test on Friday. It, it depends, I think, on the field that you're in, because yeah. certainly in in math and science, it's become sort of this de jour. Everyone always says, oh, memorization's bad, and you shouldn't do it, and you all you need to do is understand. And then it turns into a problem because students think, well, if I just got the aha moment, then I've got it. And they don't realize that it actually takes practice and repetition to truly master and get those neural patterns so they're ingrained within you. They don't just, just getting the aha doesn't ingrain the pattern. Only practice and repetition can do that. And somehow that's obvious when you're learning a sport, right? If you're practicing your golf swing or if you're learning a new language, you've got to practice with the new words that you're learning. But it isn't so obvious in math and science. And so I think that's why uh, the importance of practice and repetition is sometimes neglected. So this, this, this approach to learning, you know, it strikes me as one that focuses on balance, uh, moderation, <laughs> you know, pace, uh, perspective, you know, what what that means to me in some ways is that this is something that you're going to be better at maybe when you're a little bit grown up, not when you're in high school. You know what I mean? I mean, it seems like something that you actually need to be a bit of an adult to know how to do. You would be surprised at how yeah. many students I get who are in their late 20s and they're just starting to study engineering seriously. And they flunked out of high school and maybe tried a little college and flunked their way. And then by the time they hit 28, 30, they're actually really mature and they're the best students in the class. Mm -hmm. So sometimes this kind of maturity uh, does come with age. But I think that we can actually teach a little of these ideas early on and help people to progress to maturity earlier. Yeah, I think they would have helped me. Again, I'll say that in high school, I had no inkling of any of this. <laughs> no inkling, no perspective. So something else you say is uh, really interesting is about failure, um, that not succeeding at learning something is not necessarily bad. Could you say some more about that? Well, I'm, I'm sort of the prime example of that. I mean, I, oh. <laughs> I flunked my way through uh, elementary, middle, and high school math and science. I mean, I, I was called into the principal because I was so belligerently refusing <laughs> to pay attention in any way, shape, or form because I just thought it was stupid. And, and, and I got into the military. I enlisted right out of high school. I didn't have the money to go to college. And, and I, 
boy, that was a real wake-up call. It's like, man, I am out in the real world here. And guess what? Math and science is actually far more useful, and it really opens career doors. And so it did make me reevaluate my earlier sentiments. But failure, as it turns out, is actually uh, it's a, a wonderful motivator, and it also teaches a lot of important lessons. So if you can if you can seize on that, and and that's essentially what I did uh, to grow from, it can it can make an incredible difference. And even on a bit by bit basis, people when you're one of the most important things you can do when you're learning is to test yourself all the time. And when you fail by testing yourself and you check it and you find out you didn't get it, that's actually a huge plus. Because if you can find these things out before a high stakes test, it's, it's a super big advantage. But testing yourself and being willing to fail is one of the most important attributes of a good learner. Well, I think that this has been really eye-opening. And again, I'm just mainly surprised that that it is still something that seems so novel because at the same time, it seems so obvious. So, I mean, I, if I guess if I could just ask you a concluding question. I mean, you've given a lot of good advice, but there, if there's one bit of advice that you would give to somebody who wants to go learn a new language or somebody who realizes, hey, you know, I really should have picked up math. <laughs> I mean, I, I, what would it be? Oh, gosh, that's, uh, wow. Talk about a kid with a hand in the cookie jar. Uh, there's so many different, I would say, and that this is just a little thing. When you're trying to learn something, if you're really trying to understand it, look at it. Don't mark up the page. Just look away and see what you can recall from what you're trying to understand, learn, or remember. That's all. That's just that's this one little trick will help you so much. It's 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 actually kind of surprising. So I, I talk about some of these things not only in the book, but also I've got a a, a new MOOC, a massive open online course coming out uh, uh, from Coursera. So all of these ideas are discussed in, in even in more depth there. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of exciting to be able to teach in a way that people can learn far more broadly. And I think that's where the, ne the next revolution is going to be, is in learners understanding how to learn more effectively. Well, you've helped us a great deal with that today. And we will make sure to online uh, and link, link, to, uh, link to the MOOC. So, <laughs> so um, Barb, thank you so much for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you, Chris. Great interview, as Thank always. You. And um, I've always loved this idea that, that your brain is working on a problem even when you're not thinking about it, you know, under the radar, so to speak. It's so fascinating. And I think that we're just starting to understand how some of these computations actually work. Uh, but I think it's exactly right to say, look, if you're really having trouble with a problem, come stepping away from the problem sometimes is just as effective as continuing to sort of bat your head against the wall. Right. And so for all of you type A workaholics who you, you know, rather than stepping away from the problem, just go get another coffee and maybe a, a chocolate chip cookie like I do, because like then I can power through something really might want to rethink a little bit some of your habits. Yeah. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you all for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. 
You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and also now online at motherjones.com slash inquiring minds. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiring minds at climatedesk.org. Once again, I want to remind you that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Harry's Razors, a new company that's disrupting the shaving industry by, at last, making a high-quality shaving experience affordable. It only costs 15 bucks to get a Harry's Razor set, which includes a handle, three blades, and shave cream, shipped right to your door, and there's even a custom engraving option. You can put your initials on the razor. In fact, today, a Harry's shaving set costs even less because we have a special offer for you, our Inquiring Minds listeners. If you go to harrys.com and use the promo code Inquiring Minds, you can save $5 off your first purchase. So head on over there now. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.